0: Ephesians 5, 7 to 14. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of God. All right. Well, good morning. Uh, anyone, uh, anyone cold in here? Yeah. I'm going to have to bring the fire this morning. All right. Well, not like that. Well, good morning. And let's start again. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, my name is Jordan. So glad to be here. Uh, If you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 5 is where we are going to be, verses 7 to 14. And as we dive in this morning, we're really jumping into what's the second installment of chapter 5. So last week we saw Paul, the writer of Ephesians, plead with the church of Ephesus to walk in love. And today he's going to plead with us to walk in light. In fact, that's really been the pattern as we've been venturing through the book of Ephesians. We've seen how Paul would have us understand that the first thing we need to do is have a realistic expectation of what our current condition is, what the current state of our soul is. We need to understand that if we're going to grasp the beauty of the gospel. And so our text today will take us on a journey of looking at the differences between walking in the darkness and walking in the light. And real important distinction, when we say darkness, in the context of this text, we're not simply to understand it as walking in darkness and doing dark things, but rather that darkness lives within us. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are sinners by nature. We are born with it. And then something really beautiful happens when we accept the free grace given to us by Jesus on the cross. We as Christians then not only walk in the light, but we become light itself. The light of Christ then lives and dwells within us. And so up until this point, Ephesians has been teaching us the different ways of walking in darkness and walking in the light. And now as we continue in chapter 5, Paul's going to get really, really practical with this, which I love. Our text is going to tell us that though we have been saved and are being sanctified and walking in the light, it's clear that there's still darkness around us. And so what are we to do with that? because as Christians, we're called to live this life of following Jesus in the midst of the world. We're not called to be saved, then go run and hide, and put up really tall walls around us so the sin and the darkness doesn't get in. That's really a far cry of the teachings of Jesus. That kind of attitude towards darkness and the world is a problem because it robs the gospel of one of its greatest victories, which is that it enables us within the same world in which we lived before to now live a new, transformed life for everyone to see. And so it's far from the Christian call for us to hide ourselves completely from that which is dark. Like, can you imagine if Jesus did that? Like, what kind of shape would we be in today spiritually? Can you imagine if Jesus never engaged that which was dark? That would mean that he would have never engaged in love with you and I. You may remember a story where Jesus healed a man and cast some demons out of him into some nearby pigs. You may recall this story. He was a man who was possessed, and Jesus, with the great authority within him, relieved him of that darkness. At that point, the man is free from that darkness. He sees Jesus about to leave town, board a ship, and he runs after Jesus. And here's what he says, Luke 8. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So this guy wanted nothing more than to leave this community that he was in, this community that he experienced maybe the darkest season of his life. He wanted to leave that and physically go with Jesus, but Jesus refused. It's interesting. And it's because Jesus had something bigger in store. Not just for this man, but for his entire city. And I get, I totally get why this man wanted to go with Jesus. He's got to be thinking, once Jesus leaves, the darkness is just going to come back in me again. Like, I can't do this alone. My place of safety is not here. I got to get out of here. But Jesus sends him back to the very place he experienced darkness. Why? Well, Jesus says, you're going to go and tell and show your whole community what God has done for you. You're going to go and witness and testify there. And so Jesus sends him back, but not alone. He sends him back with a power within him that the man had not yet realized. God sends him back where he experienced darkness, now with the light of Christ and the Holy Spirit dwelling within him so that all would see that this guy had changed, and they would look at him and go, there's something different about this guy that I need. That's the call for us. And I'll contend that there's few things more important than practically living this out, particularly in the current state of our world. Like, our world has become more and more godless, it seems like by the minute. It is becoming a continually more difficult problem to be a Christian in this day and age and understand how we're to conduct ourselves in our actions, in our speech, as we go to work, as we have business meetings, as we discuss political stances, as we navigate what freedom is. Basically, every aspect of life today, all while doing it with men and women who have zero tolerance for Jesus Christ. It's hard. And so how do we do this? How do we walk in the light? Well, Paul's going to help us in our text, and he's going to show us three ways for us to walk in the light. So we're going to see one, he's going to tell us to watch our partnerships. Two, watch your thoughts. And three, expose the darkness, or as I like to put it, light it up. So that's where we're going today. Number one, watch your partnerships. Jump into Ephesians 5. We'll start in verse 7. All right, here we go. It's cold. Verse 7. Therefore, and we'll get to that therefore in a second. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So you once walked in darkness, but now you are to walk in the light, being children of light and no longer partaking in the things of darkness. This is a pretty straightforward statement here. What he's saying is that we are no longer to partner with or take part in those dark things. We are to make a clean cut away from such practices and lifestyles. So what things is he talking about then? Well, that brings us to our text last week in verse 3. Just skip back a few verses. Here's what he's referring to not to partner with. He says, "...but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints." Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedient." says, this is what I'm talking about. Don't be partners with these things. Realize that those are things that have no place in the kingdom of God and should be wiped clear of your repertoire. And now here's what's interesting and equally challenging. Paul is telling these things to professing Christians. He's speaking directly to those who are within the church in Ephesus. Likewise, he's saying it to us. And so it's obvious then that the fact that he has to remind these churchgoers of this list makes it evident that many of them are still struggling with and even falling into these behaviors. And I'm prone to believe that that's true within this church today as well. See, when we give our lives to Jesus, we don't immediately understand everything about the Christian faith, right? Anybody? We, we have to learn things. We have to grow. We have to go step by step, lesson by lesson. And because of our former lifestyle and how it had been so deeply engraved as to who we are, and maybe we lived in it for years, maybe even decades, it really becomes who we are so much so that the application of Christian truth becomes very difficult to make its way into your life. And it takes time to make it a regular part of who you are. And so for the Ephesians, they had become so accustomed to regarding certain things as perfectly normal and natural ways of living with, with no consequences that they had to be taught that these things were sinful and wicked and ultimately robbing them of true joy in Jesus Christ. And you'll find this type of instruction all over the New Testament, especially with Paul. And so hear me, a follower of Jesus, a Christian, is not a man or woman who suddenly in one moment is done with sin altogether and all temptation is gone once and for all. No, he or she is sanctified by the truth. It's a process. They grow more and more in the likeness of God. And so the first lesson for us is simple. Yet it may take time and it's difficult and it's that we're not to partner with these things of darkness. But that brings us to the second lesson, the second way we can walk in light, which is not that simple. And that's we should watch our thoughts. Look, at me, uh, look with me at verse 11. We'll just look at the first part here. Pay attention to the language here and how it differs. Paul now says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. We'll get to the exposing in a second. He says, take no part in. So in verse 7, he says, don't partner with, but now he's saying, take no part in. Does that seem a little repetitive? Well, there's an important distinction, especially if you get into the actual Greek translation here. Because if Paul wanted to, he could have easily just said the same thing both times. Don't partner with, don't partner with. But he clearly uses different language here, and this phrase is meant to take us further than simply not partnering with. So if verse 7 tells us that we're not to partner with and join in the practice of these things of darkness, then verse 11 is going to push the doctrine even further because he says now we're, not, so now we're not to take any part in. So what he's saying is we're not even to show the slightest interest in these things. So not only do we not do them or partner with them, but now we're not to show any desire whatsoever. To go even further, we're not even to think about doing these things or talk about doing them or show the slightest interest. It's a big difference because it's one thing to not do these things. It's a whole other ball game to not even think about them or have no desire for them. Because I bet there's some Christians, I don't know, maybe like three in the whole world, who have the discipline to never do these things. But can they stop themselves from not even thinking about wanting to do them? It's essentially the way that Jesus taught at the Sermon on the Mount when he says things like, it's not just that we we don't murder our brother because I think we pass there, but if you have any anger at all towards your brother, that's just as bad. And so, by all accounts, we must be thinking right now, this seems like an extremely highly unobtainable goal. And, like we saw in the Beatitude series in the summer, that's really exactly the point. It's not that we're capable of living this out perfectly but rather that we're not capable of it and we need help. And at the same time, we have a gracious and patient and loving Savior who reconciles, who forgives, and saves those who has a desire to remove these things from their lives, even if that means we fail along the way. Some really simple math, two steps forward, one step back, that's a step forward still. The goal here is progress. And so right now, as we're reading this, I'm guessing, I want to stop down, because I'm guessing there's three main responses in hearts right now, collectively. Maybe there's more, but I think there's three primary ones when we hear how we're called to live right now. The first is you don't care. You're indifferent. Maybe you're not convinced that following Jesus is better or more joyful than the pursuits of this world. And if that's you, uh, first off, I'll say that you're welcome here. We're so glad that you're here. There's no judgment on you here. I would simply ask you to ask yourself, am I really, truly satisfied with what I'm pursuing right now? Or when I lay awake at night, am I wanting something more? And if that's where you're at, I would just challenge you to at least consider Jesus Christ this morning. And maybe you pray to him for the very first time. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. It can just be right there in your head and just say, Jesus, like I've been looking for happiness everywhere. I've found some things that have made me kind of happy, but I still feel empty inside. If you're there, would you show yourself to me? The second response some of you may be feeling right now Is a lie, and it's that of condemnation. And you feel just the weight of judgment upon you. And maybe that leads you into what's known as self-loathing, and you start to say things like, "Ah, I'm not good enough. There's there's no way Jesus could love me. Look at the things I've done." And I think because of how much Jesus rebukes the Pharisees Um, the idea of self-righteousness gets a lot of publicity when it comes to misunderstanding the gospel. You know, like people who think they're better than others because they're able to follow all the rules and do all the right things, and because they're able to, they think they deserve mercy and grace and favor while others don't. And while that absolutely needs to be rebuked and corrected, I would contend that self-loathing is just as damaging to your soul. Self-loathing says that I'm so bad that I and I alone have out-sinned the cross of Christ. You're saying that you have gone so far into darkness that Jesus is thinking about retracting his offer. Let me ask you a question I heard one pastor ask. He said, how many... Of your sins were future sins when Jesus was being beaten and dying on the cross. Well, unless you're over 2,000 years old, all of them were. You didn't surprise him with your sinfulness. He knew it was coming. That's precisely why you went to the cross. Romans 5, 8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so if you have that moment in your life, that memory or that thing that you did that you never thought you were capable of doing, but you did it, and maybe you went further into darkness than you ever thought that you would go, that even the thought of it right now is just pummeling you with waves of shame and guilt, then that is the exact moment that Jesus Christ died for you. That's the moment he cried out, it is finished. See, self-loathing puts you in a position above and beyond the power of the cross. And so I thought it was important to stop down here for some foundational reminders because I know this is a tough text, and I know that when we go through lists like this where we're called to live a certain life and we read we're to do this and we're to not do this, it can really quickly become demoralizing and we can feel like failures But the whole point of the gospel is not that we did and we can, but rather that we can't, and Jesus did. Yeah, and honestly, that's that's the most freeing news ever. It takes so much pressure off of us, because if it was up to my discipline and my performance, like, I wouldn't stand a chance. And so I praise God for his mercy And while we're constantly reminding ourselves in the midst of our shortcomings and darkness that Jesus loves us despite our failures, at the same time, we're to constantly be pressing into him, asking him to strengthen us, asking him for less and less of a desire for the things of this earth and more and more a desire for him. Honestly, the goal here is not perfection. That's for Jesus. The goal here is progress. There should be progress, movement, sanctification, becoming more and more like him as we grow, which is honestly slower than we'd like most of the time. But we have a gracious, loving father who's not out to get us. But honestly, he's he's on your side. He is so for you that he's cheering you on in the heavens like a good father cheers on their child as they're learning how to walk, celebrating each step, Not punishing them every time they fall down, not out to get them, but coming alongside them as they progress one step at a time, one day at a time, one moment at a time. You want to know how God looks at you right now? Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst right now. He is a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Right now, God is in the heavens. He sees you progressing step by step by step, and he's cheering you on. He is so pleased with you that he's actually singing about how much he loves you. It's an incredible picture. And so, there's no condemnation. Anything within you that's telling you that is a lie. And so what's the proper response to this? That's the third thing, the third response, the one that brings life, and that's conviction. 2 Corinthians 7.10 breaks it down for us. It says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So there's a very important distinction here when it comes to conviction versus condemnation. As we've said, as believers, there is now no more condemnation because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So what then is that weighty feeling that some of you might be feeling right now? Well, conviction comes from the Lord and it's meant to lead us to Jesus. It's meant to lead us into life and joy. It might feel like condemnation at times because often when we sin, the last thing we want to do is bring it to light. But I promise you, it's by the grace of God that he reveals it to you and he brings us conviction. As one pastor said, you can only see Jesus as a great savior when you can see yourself as a great sinner. It's the only way to understand how amazing what Jesus did for you was. Conviction is intended to lead us to the Lord. Conviction causes us to look to Jesus. When someone is experiencing condemnation, there's really no solution to their problem. But when we experience the conviction of God, it's meant to draw us into him to receive his mercy, to receive his grace and his forgiveness. In conviction there's hope because on the cross Jesus died for all of our sins. John 3:17 says for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world. And so back to our point. First, not only are we to not partner with things of darkness, but we're not even to think about them or desire to do them. It's a difficult call, but a call nonetheless. And and really, we can praise God that we don't have to do this by our own strength. Our salvation isn't based upon how well we do this or don't do this. We're met with grace along the way, but there should be progress. We should strive for sanctification and growth. And that brings us to the last way that we walk in the light, and that's we expose the darkness, or we light it up. Look with me at verse 11 to 14. Paul says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, an important question for us. When we've said, Do not become partners with or take no part in the unfruitful works, how then are we to engage those who do partake or do do these things? And this could be people inside the church. It could be people outside. We are to engage them in the same way that our Lord Jesus Christ engaged tax collectors and sinners and ultimately us, and that is graciously and lovingly and patiently and with a message that can light up their darkness. Like Jesus sat with them, He ate with them. They drew near to him, and he never refused or rejected them. He mingled with them. He spoke to them, and he did it in such a way that while he did it, he had no partnership whatsoever with the unfruitful works of darkness. And so what Paul is saying is that while we do maintain relationships and contact for the good of exposing them to the light of Christ with the hope of bringing salvation, we are to distinguish ourselves as different from them. Not thinking that we're better, but as people who conduct ourselves as those who walk in love and walk in light in such a way that causes them to think, there's something about this person that I need in my life. But we have to remember, and it's key to remember, how exactly we walk with them. And that's not as policemen on the prowl looking to judge. No, it's as Ephesians 5 verse 1 says from last week, we walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And Paul's telling us here that the best way for us to walk in love is to expose the darkness to the light. It's an idea that we need to get right. I can think of few other ways that have caused more damage to people than Christians misinterpreting this idea of exposing. Like, here's what it does not mean. To expose doesn't mean simply to negatively rebuke. Don't do that because I said so, because it's bad, and it stops there. Paul wants us to know that exposing or rebuking must go far deeper than that, because that attitude is really the attitude of the Pharisees, isn't it? Like, morality, legalism, giving self-righteous lectures on the evil effects of said action, but it never goes beyond that. It's simply, don't do that because I said so. And so the lecturer feels like they're doing God's work of exposing, but really they're just giving a negative application without a hint of the positive or an alternative way. And that's not what Paul's talking about here. That's not loving. And so what then does he mean when he says to expose? Here's what he means. Exposing means to convince by means of evidence, to convict by means of offering enlightenment and understanding in the place of darkness. It means that we're to throw the light of Christ upon and light up the things of darkness in such a loving way and manner that they can see that there's another better option for them. That there's something more. That we're not merely telling them this because we think we're better or have everything figured out, but because we deeply care about the state of their souls and want them to experience the same joy in Jesus that we have. And so it's not a call for us to get our judge gavels out and run around just denouncing these things all around us. Instead, we're to throw upon them the light of the gospel. That's what we're exposing the darkness to. In other words, you don't address the partaker's actions alone. No, we in a loving, sympathetic, and understanding manner talk to them about themselves, the state of their souls, and their whole relationship with God. Because the true problem with a man who, let's say, excessively drinks isn't simply that he's drunk. The problem is the man's relationship with God is fractured. And Paul tells us that those who willingly walk in darkness... With no signs of repentance, have no place in the kingdom of God, and therefore exposure to them is to throw the whole gospel upon their life so that they might be saved. It's not just don't do that, you gotta go further. The loving thing to do is to, to declare what is good in its place to follow the example of Jesus Christ as he met with sinners. When he met with them, he didn't simply expose their sin, though he did. But he went further. He preached the gospel to them at every moment. He showed the love of God to them, helping them realize the totality of what these dark actions were doing to them and offering them a better way that's how we expose. That's how we light it up. And let me close with this idea. And really, it's a challenge. I get the sense that for many in here, the call for us this morning is not exposing darkness in others to light but rather exposing the darkness within ourselves to the light of Christ. I even just pray right now in this moment that God would just stop us from the tendency of hearing a message and first looking at the darkness in others' lives without thinking about what's going on in ourselves. So we got to begin by exposing the darkness in ourselves because sure, that's robbing us of joy. And so ask yourself this morning, are you walking in darkness? Do you have something that you need to expose to light? It's going to be hard, but you will be met with grace. As we walk in community with each other, you know, as community groups start up, I know there's already a lot of great community here. There will be times that we will need to expose one another in love, but we got to start with ourselves. You ever realize that Jesus rarely needed to call people towards him? Like he didn't have some big ad campaign to draw people in. But somehow, he was always surrounded by tons of people. Why is that? People couldn't help themselves people needed to see him. There was something about him that was attractive. And it wasn't the Pharisees. It wasn't the religious elite. No, it was was the sinners. It was those walking in darkness who saw him walking in love and walking in light and they so desperately wanted to be exposed to it. That's our call as well. If we walk in the light the light will shine all around us and will drown out the darkness and so can we start with ourselves this morning let me pray and so jesus we just we just praise you for the light that you're offering us we thank you for your finished work on the cross which is there to drown out the darkness within us. And I really just pray for my brothers and sisters in here this morning that, oh, you would just give us such boldness and strength to bring whatever we're holding on inside us to your light, to receive your grace, to receive your mercy, to receive your strength. And so I pray for courage for that. I pray that maybe this morning we tap our neighbor on the shoulder or we come up for prayer and, and we just ask for, for help in giving this to God, giving this to you. And Maybe it's something we've been carrying around for years and we felt an angst. We felt unsatisfied. So I just pray that you would help us bring to light that which is keeping us from you, Lord. And as we leave this place, may we just be ambassadors for you that we may, we may walk in love, that we, we may return to our communities and just be your light. But we need your help. We need your help. Help us just rely on you. We love you. We need you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.